Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you all and to reiterate Lucy's greeting, a very warm welcome to everyone, particularly those of you who are here for the first time, either as visitors or as freshers looking for a spiritual home for the duration of your time in St. Andrews. Of course, we hope that you will feel comfortable here, but it is so important to find the church that works for you. One size does not fit all, and we are fortunate in St. Andrews to have several churches which cater for a whole spectrum of approaches to worship. So if you need to keep looking until you find what works for you, then do so, and God bless you in that undertaking. Uh, my name is Carol Foster, my husband Toby and I planted Kingdom Vineyard in 2004, having come up from London where we lived for donkey's years, and we retired in 2018, um, handing on to uh, Jim and Rachel Cronin who are currently on sabbatical. Um, Toby is Scottish born and spent the first five years of his life in Edinburgh, so he came home in 2004. And I am completely Scottish, <clears throat> which some of you may struggle to believe if you judge by my dulcet tones alone. It is, however, true, and truth, as we know, is sometimes stranger than fiction. Well, what a week we've had. For some of you, it will be your first whole week away from home, a huge personal change of circumstance. We also acquired a new Prime Minister in Liz Truss on Monday, and on Thursday evening we heard of the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Only 13.6 of people in the UK are over 70. And as we all know, the Queen reigned for 70 years. That means that 86.4% of us have never known anyone other than the Queen on the throne, some of us for considerably longer than others, of course. Whatever our personal feelings may be about the institution of the monarchy, few, I believe, can gainsay what a remarkable woman the Queen was. And her faith was clearly the bedrock of her long life. My talk today is based on the first chapter of Luke from verses 5 to 25, it features another Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. So this Sunday, I have the great privilege of being able to draw on the lives of two faithful and faith-filled Elizabeths. Were we to follow their examples, every aspect of our lives would be the better for it. I've asked our daughter Rachel to read today's passage for us. It's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 to 25, and Rachel will be reading from the NIV, the New International Version. In the time of King Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Ab Abijah? Abijah. That's the one. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And when the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you of this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Thank you very much, Rach. Those of you who were here last week will have heard Toby's introductory talk on the first four verses of this gospel, when he also provided a succinct and helpful overview of the whole book of Luke. I commend it to you. You can access it online on the Kingdom Vineyard website. Various things stood out for me from what he said, in particular, that Luke is not teaching theology in this gospel. Rather, he is telling a story. His aim is to present as historically accurate an account of Jesus' life and subsequent events as he can. So with that in mind, what I'm looking to do is to consider the very beginning of this story and see what it says and how we can apply it um, to what we see in our own lives now. Luke is setting the scene in this first chapter. Any of us who have been around the church for any length of time will be very familiar with the second chapter of Luke, which is read every Christmas in most churches of whatever kind, anywhere. In this first chapter, we are introduced to some key people in the build-up to Jesus' actual arrival on the scene. We meet Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth, Elizabeth's cousin Mary, the mother of Jesus, and in due course, we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, John. And for good measure, the angel Gabriel makes two rather key appearances. And we get to look at the first of those today. So what do we learn about Zechariah and Elizabeth directly? Firstly, that Zechariah is a priest and therefore a Levite in the division of Abijah, which I'll come to. 
And Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, we're told. Aaron, Moses, and Miriam were great-grandchildren of Levi. So this means that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were Levites from the tribe of Levi, which was the tribe whom God had specifically appointed to be priests back in the day. Secondly, we learn that they were righteous in the sight of God and blameless in their observance of the Lord's commands and decrees. Thirdly, we learn that they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. Or was she? I'm going to allow myself the smallest of diversions here. Think it, of it as, as a brief halt on the path of this talk to watch the birds or smell the flowers rather than a distraction. Have you noticed how in the Bible it's always the women who are barren? Have you noticed that? Maybe Luke knew something that we are not party to, which proved that it was indeed Elizabeth's problem. But maybe, just maybe, it wasn't. Maybe it was Zechariah's. I concede this is of little, if any, relevance to the matter in hand. <laughs> I'm just putting it out there with no trace of skepticism. <laughs> Moving on. Fourthly, we learned that they were very old. I have to say that the definition of very old gets older as you yourself get older. I remember as a teenager feeling rather sorry for anybody over 30. But the point is, Elizabeth's childbearing years were considered to be over. That could simply mean she was actually in her 50s, which doesn't seem very old to me for some reason, but we'll never know. In verses 8 to 10, we learn that it was the turn of Zechariah's division, the division of Abijah, from the priestly tribe of Levi to be on duty at the temple. There is much to know about priestly divisions if you are inclined to learn, and you will find it all explained in 1 Chronicles 24. So if you're interested, by all means, go and look. For our purposes, all we need to know today is that Zechariah was on incense duty. Then in verse 11, Gabriel makes his entrance where only Zechariah can see him. He is alone in the temple sanctuary. The crowd outside are oblivious. Zechariah is described as being startled, which sounds like an understatement, and then being gripped with fear, which sounds more like it. I think any of us would gibber in similar circumstances, and clearly angels expect that reaction because whenever one appears in the first two chapters of Luke, their opening gambit is, do not be afraid. Gabriel says it here to Zechariah, again to Mary at the Annunciation, and another unnamed angel of the Lord says it in chapter two to the shepherds when he announces the birth of Jesus. As Toby pointed out last week, Angels get a lot of mention in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, more than anywhere else in the New Testament other than in the book of Revelation. What we learn in verse 12 is that they are terrifying, and in verse 19, that they are messengers of the living God and expect, therefore, to be believed unquestioningly. But we learn something else about Zechariah in verse 13, and that is that in spite of very poor odds, given his and Elizabeth's age, he has continued to pray for a child. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. So to the list of things we already know about him, that he is a priest and that he is righteous 
blameless, childless, and old, we can add that we know he is hopeful and that he is both faithful in prayer and faith-filled. He prays believing that his God can do anything. John's birth to a mother past childbearing years is not a first in the Bible, of course. In Genesis, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac in their 90s. This opening story of Luke reminds us of that and sets us up to expect something of great importance to follow. In Genesis 15, God promises Abraham that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that's before Sarah becomes pregnant with Isaac. In verse 17 of this opening chapter, Gabriel tells Zechariah that John's job will be to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We, in turn, are being prepared by Luke for something even more momentous and important than the birth of a prophet. John is going to be a joy and a delight to his parents. Many will rejoice, we hear, because of his birth and the message he goes on to preach. He lays the foundation for the restoration of God's people through Jesus. John is the supporting act. Fantastically inciting in himself, but effectively the warm-up for the person we've really come to see. The one of whom John says later in Luke chapter 3, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Last week, Toby mentioned that the Holy Spirit is a major feature of Luke and Acts, and I would dearly love to say more, but that falls to whoever is preaching next Sunday. I'll confine myself to saying simply that John and Elizabeth are major players, so don't miss next week's exciting installment. Do we learn anything else about Zechariah? Well, for all his steadfastness and faithfulness, he does express doubt. Frankly, to my mind, quite reasonably so. How can I be sure of this, he asks, given the realities of the situation? As we see, however, Gabriel is unimpressed and Zechariah is struck dumb, unable to speak until John is born. Earlier, I mentioned that Zechariah was seen as blameless, but that doesn't mean he was sinless. And if that sounds like a rather censorious way to put it, Maybe it would be better simply to call him human rather than sinful. Zechariah's doubt shows humanity rather than any innate wickedness. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of us, then and now. Again and again throughout the Bible, God uses ordinary, flawed people to forward his purposes. Even a cursory read of Genesis proves that God uses liars, drunks, mockers, people consumed with jealousy, people just like us, in fact, to build his kingdom. And that's before we start on the prostitutes, the adulterers, the murderers, and goodness knows who else. It seems to me that God is careful to use flawed people 
so that none of us can then say, well, it was all right for them. They were so holy. They're people just like us. I take enormous comfort in this personally. God can and does use us in tiny ways, bigger ways, and possibly great ways, in spite of ourselves. What response can we have to that sort of grace and faithfulness other than gratitude? I love the image conjured up by verses 21 and 22. The people are fed up waiting for Zechariah to emerge from the temple. For goodness sake, how long does it take to burn some incense? What's he doing in there? They've all got places to go and things to do. Then he comes out and he can't speak, so they realize he's seen a vision, so 10 out of 10 for observational skills. I was reading Tom Wright's book, Luke, for everyone in preparation for this talk, in which he says in passing, don't be frightened of finding the Bible funny when it really is. Coming from a very prominent theologian and the former Bishop of Durham, I am happy to concur. So, she said, trying to get the paper off, how would you go about telling someone you've just been conversing with an angel when you've been struck dumb? Anyone? Perhaps we can have a little demonstration later. The temptation to do it myself is almost overwhelming, but I've overwhelmed it, fortunately, so that's... <laughs> Very good, dear. <laughs> and then we finally get to Elizabeth. I find Elizabeth's response to her pregnancy both joy-giving and arguably from our very 21st century perspective, heartbreaking. She knows her pregnancy is a miracle. She is too old to have a baby and she knows beyond any doubt that God has blessed her with what she has longed for for decades and she is so happy and so grateful. And on top of being pregnant, God has taken away my disgrace among the people, she says. As we've seen, Elizabeth is considered righteous in the eyes of God, observing all God's commands and decrees blamelessly. So she's not in disgrace with him. She's in disgrace with her peers. They hold her in contempt. Her childless in their eyes renders her worthless. It must be a judgment on her, they decide. So derision is the appropriate response, not sympathy, not sorrow. And yet we read Elizabeth is simply and humbly grateful to her God. I think this tiny clause, he has taken away my disgrace among the people, says a great deal more than I'm comfortable with about how very mean we can be to one another sometimes. This little story in these 20 verses is about faithfulness. Firstly, the faithfulness of God. Some of us will be familiar with the verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which talks of God using the weak things of the world to shame the strong. In the message, Eugene Peterson paraphrases 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 to 30, like this. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose the nobodies to expose the hollow pretension of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own trumpet before God. Everything that we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate, 
A fresh start comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. God uses old people beyond their sell-by date. He uses young people with negligible life experience. Think Greta Thunberg and Malala Yousafzai. And by the way, he'll use people of faiths which differ from ours or of no faith at all. He doesn't submit his choices to us for scrutiny or approval. He used a donkey to speak wisdom to Balaam in Numbers chapter 22, and if that isn't the ultimate in faithfulness to his children, I really don't know what is. So let's be encouraged. He can and he will work through us with all our many shortcomings and self-loathing and sulking and stroppiness, and he will do all this if we let him because he loves us. We have a saying in the vineyard, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. God's faithfulness to us is such that his mercies are new every morning, as Lamentations 3 tells us. God is so gracious. He lets us choose to take his mercies or to leave them. But if we leave them, if we choose to stay as we are, with all our shortcomings and self-loathing and sulking and stroppiness, with all our resentment and our bitterness, then God's love remains steadfast, certainly, and we remain unhappy. Clinging to those things can only result in our own suffering. So for our own sake, if not for others, let's take his invitation not to stay as we are. God invites us to participate in his restorative and redemptive plans for his beloved creation and for ourselves. If we want to be part of the story, as Toby said last week, we have only to pick up our metaphorical pen and write the page that only we can write. Secondly, this little story tells us of the faithfulness of ordinary people, people like Zechariah and Elizabeth, ordinary people in a very long line of ordinary people whom God has seen fit to use to build his kingdom. Elizabeth appears exclusively in this first chapter of Luke in the Bible, which most Protestants read. She does feature in the Apocrypha. If you don't know what that is, go and ask a theologian. But my brief today was to talk from this short reading, so that's what I've done. She gets but two brief mentions in today's passage, but what emerges even from those is a woman of faithfulness, steadfastness, extraordinary patience, humility, and gratitude. Not bad gleanings from effectively two verses. I've been a Christian for over 40 years now, but when I grow up, I want to be like Elizabeth. I'm so grateful to God that he knows we are all works in progress, and that he never gives up on us, even if we kicked about the kingdom for decades and should know better. I said at the beginning of this talk that I could draw on the lives of two faithful and faith-filled Elizabeths today. So I want to finish by saying just a little bit about the Queen. I've talked a lot about ordinary people, so the main point of debate might be just how ordinary was she? given her royal status, her wealth, and her worldwide prominence. 
arguably, ordinary people don't feature on every stamp, coin, or banknote in the land, or have everyone bow or curtsy to them at every turn. But every last one of us does have something in common with Queen Elizabeth, and that's our humanity. She was human, and therefore subject to all the same feelings and emotions as we all are, but with considerably less freedom to express them. She lived her life under the often critical and it's all right for her gaze of the world. She didn't seek the life she lived, but she lived it as if it were a calling from God, and I believe that's what she thought it was. She was quite clearly a woman of deep and abiding faith. If we should doubt that, listen to any of her Christmas messages over the last 20 years or so and note how she gently and effectively preached the gospel every time. She was working at the age of 96 up to two days before she died. Every deeply personal family tragedy, and there have been a few, was lived out in the full glare of the public eye. And yet, not once did she give up on her calling to serve God with a selflessness most of us can only aspire to. We can debate whether the monarchy is an archaic concept which has had its day. But what we cannot doubt is Queen Elizabeth's unflagging sense of duty, her servant heart, and her unstinting faithfulness and obedience to the God she loved and honored. We can do so much worse than follow her example. Shall we stand and I'll pray? Father God, thank you so much that you have chosen to build your kingdom and to grow your church through flawed, ordinary people like us. Father, thank you not only for the example of those we see in Scripture, but also for showing us that those people were often very flawed too. And we bless you for your generosity. We bless you for your mercy. We bless you that your grace is forever extended to us. And so, Father, wherever we stand this morning, wherever we feel we are, Lord, I pray that you will meet with us I pray that you will fill us with your spirit. I pray that you will speak to us and encourage us. And we thank you, Lord, for the faithful service of Queen Elizabeth and for your son, Jesus. Amen.